You are listening to the Already Gone Podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. This week's episode covers a particularly vicious and disturbing murder. Listener discretion is strongly advised. When I was a kid, growing up in Oakland County, I thought someday I would live in Clarkston. It's a town at the northern end of the county, and 20-some years ago, North Oakland County was just a couple of small towns, like Clarkston, Leonard, Holly, and Lake Orion. There's no shortage of waterfront up there, places like Deer Lake, Whipple Lake, and Park Lake. Clarkston is close to Pine Knob, an outdoor concert venue where my favorite bands play each summer. In the winter, Clarkston is home to the Pine Knob Ski Resort. Clarkston was settled in the 1820s, and by the 1850s, with the arrival of the railroad, visitors from Detroit traveled to the area to hunt, fish, or just get away from the big city for some fresh air. While it's considered a suburb of Detroit, Clarkston is some 40 miles from downtown, and in many aspects, it's a world away. Edward Hockey grew up in Clarkston. His wife, Shirley, she was raised in nearby Pontiac. When the two married, they decided to raise their family, a son, Perry, and two daughters, Renee and Monica, in Clarkston. They lived in a house not too far from the Mill Pond Dam. Their three kids attended Clarkston schools. Mom Shirley worked outside the home and managed the house and raised the three children, a labor of love. Shirley prided herself on the closeness of her family. But instead of staying at Clarkston High School to get her diploma, Monica dropped out, leaving school at the end of her junior year. Her parents weren't real happy about that decision, but she was working. Monica landed a job with one of the automakers at a plant in Pontiac. Harry was working as well. He had recently paid off his car and spent much of his free time with his toddler daughter, who lived with her mother. Everything in their world is normal, ordinary, steady. All of this is about to change. A series of tragedies will befall them, putting tremendous strain on the happy, close-knit family. Come with me to March of 1979, when the world that Ed and Shirley Hockey created for their three beloved children took a dark and startling turn. One cold March night, Perry Hockey was out with friends. The group was up in Ortonville, a town about ten miles north of Clarkston. Now, Ortonville didn't develop as quickly as Clarkston because both the railroad and the interstate missed the community. Instead, Ortonville is a woodsy place, nestled between the Holly Recreation Area and the Ortonville Recreation Area. Ortonville is flanked by nearly 12,000 acres of parks and woodland. That night, in Ortonville, at the Wildwood Inn Bar, Perry and his friends are having a few beers and playing pool. One of Perry's friends got into a verbal altercation with another patron. And the story gets hazy here. Perhaps Perry inserted himself between the two, either to calm the situation or to stand up for his friend. Instead of de-escalating things, the situation became worse. Perry was struck repeatedly, his head hitting the ground with a sickening thud. An ambulance was called, 
and Perry was transported 25 miles south to Pontiac, where there are hospitals, trauma centers, available to help him. The emergency room staff did what they could, but Perry was gravely injured. Terms like brain injury, crushed, and coma are thrown around as they work feverishly to help the young father. As his brain swelled, they operated, removing a piece of his skull and altering his appearance in an attempt to save his life and prevent further brain injury. Perry would fall into a coma, a place he would stay for months. His parents, Ed and Shirley, stayed with him as much as they could, caring for their son, making sure he received the treatment that he needed. It would be several months until Perry would wake up, and he wouldn't be the same. The fight, which Shirley learned was over a dollar, that fight changed everything. And yes, listeners, you heard that correctly. Perry Hockey had everything taken from him in a disagreement over a dollar. Perry Hockey will miss the spring and summer of 1979, trapped in a coma as his brain struggles to heal itself. But Perry wakes up with terrible injuries, and his memory is compromised. 29 years old, and he needs round-the-clock care, which Shirley provides for him. The man who struck Perry would not be arrested or charged in the assault. Perry's father, Edward, will later tell the press that, quote, the kid never spent five minutes in jail. No one would be held accountable for what happened to Perry. The fight nearly killed him, altering the course of his life and changing the once happy and steady trajectory of the hockey family. Perry's sister, Monica, will celebrate her birthday in April, just weeks after the tragic fight that caused such horrific injuries to her brother. And the summer of 1979 passed in a blur of hospital visits, and driving back and forth from Clarkston to Pontiac to sit with Perry, waiting at his bedside for a sign of improvement in his condition, waiting for Perry to wake up. As the summer wound down, Labor Day weekend approached. Monica Hockey was out with friends at a party when she ran into a guy she knew from school, Kyle Johnson. Johnson was recently released from Jackson Prison, where he'd served time on a breaking and entering charge in the fall of 1977. We can't say if Monica knew that Johnson was freshly out of prison. Johnson is accompanied by Jeffrey Allen Coyle. Coyle was about a year younger than Hockey and Johnson, but his criminal record spoke for itself. He'd done time for larceny and carrying a concealed weapon, a serious offense in 1978. Johnson is on the run from a halfway house in Pontiac, the same halfway house where he'd met Coyle a few months earlier. Two ex-cons, still in their teens, out looking for a good time. Monica's friends sensed that something was off about the two men, but they couldn't talk Monica out of spending time with them. Over Labor Day weekend, Monica told friends and family that she was headed to Grand Blanc, near Flint, to visit friends. Monica wasn't being truthful. Her plans actually involved meeting up with Kyle Johnson, perhaps spending the weekend with him. She packed an overnight bag, got into her 1974 Chevy Malibu, and headed out. This would be the last time Shirley or Edward Hockey saw their daughter. The summer had been a stressful one for Monica. 
In addition to her brother lingering in a coma after receiving a head injury during a fight back in March, her grandmother was ill, stricken with cancer. Monica's parents had the added task of caring for her grandmother and her brother, in addition to the usual responsibilities of work and home. What should have been a carefree summer for a teenage girl was anything but. Perhaps Monica viewed spending time with Johnson and Coyle as a chance to get away from stress at home. She could let her hair down and have some fun. Monica attended a party on Saturday night and left the party about 10.30 p.m. It's the last time she's seen alive by anyone other than her killers. It's hard to know what happened next or how the situation unfolded. What we do know is that Monica's brutally assaulted body is discovered on Sunday, September 2nd, 1979. She'd been struck in the head and face with a hammer. Angry red crescent-shaped injuries dot her forehead and scalp. Her legs are battered and bruised. At some point in the small hours of Sunday morning, Johnson and Coyle carried her body out to their vehicle and laid her in the back seat, so her legs were sticking out of the car. Then they repeatedly slammed the car doors against her legs, leaving a grim pattern of bruises and abrasions on her skin. Not content with bashing in her skull and trying to break her legs, one of the men took a meat fork. You know, the long-handled tool with a sharp two-pronged tine at the end? A sturdy metal utensil you might use when carving up your Thanksgiving turkey. Monica's body is dotted with more than 100 wounds from that fork. When Johnson and Coyle are certain that Monica is dead, they again load her into the car and dump her remains in the woods. The murder of Monica Hockey is brutal, ugly, and senseless. Her fully clothed body is discovered by an older man, a longtime resident of Clarkston, who is out for a Sunday afternoon bike ride. Her remains are covered with leaves and branches and debris in an attempt to hide her. There is no purse, wallet, or other identification found with her body. Monica's car, the 1974 Chevy Malibu, is found abandoned about a mile south of her remains. On Monday, her body is identified, and the hockey family is told that Monica, their smiling, dark-haired daughter, won't be coming home. Suddenly, Ed and Shirley Hockey are living in a nightmare. They have a son in a coma and a daughter in the morgue. When Monica's cancer-stricken grandmother learns of her death, her health takes a turn for the worse, and she passes away hours later. The Hockey family plans a double funeral for Monica and her grandmother. The funeral is held at the New Hope Bible Church, where the Hockey family has attended services for decades. In the days after the murder, Johnson and Coyle visit a local bar, where the two boast of their assault on the 20-year-old Monica Hockey, talking about how badly they'd hurt her, bragging of what they'd done as they down yet another bear. A patron overheard the pair. He'd heard the news about the murder of a local girl, left in the woods on the side of the road. He places a call to the sheriff's department, asking them to come check out the men at the bar. He thinks they could be involved in the murder of Monica Hockey. The Oakland County Sheriff responds to the scene and questions Johnson and Coyle. As they are talking, they notice dark stains on the men's clothing. 
brownish splatters and smears on their jeans and shoes. They take the man into custody because Coyle had escaped from a halfway house and Johnson was on parole. Back at the station, they take the men's clothes into evidence and the stains and smears on their pants and shoes are determined to be blood. Neither Johnson nor Coyle bothered to clean up after murdering Monica Hockey. When pressed for a reason, when asked why, why did they kill Monica? Why did they beat her and stab her and try to break her legs? The response is chilling. Quote, I'd never seen anyone die before. I wanted to see what it was like. In the days after the murder, the county prosecutor, L. Brooks Patterson, decides he will take over the case. He works with prosecutor and future judge Ed Sosnick to prosecute the two men. Patterson is shocked and saddened by the senseless brutality of Hockey's murder. In the September 6, 1979 Free Press, Patterson labels Hockey's death a senseless thrill-killing. That may not have happened if Michigan had the death penalty. He launches a campaign to bring the death penalty back to Michigan. Patterson tells the public that a crime of this nature, so senseless, so brutal and unforgiving, deserves the ultimate sentence. Now, in his role as county prosecutor, Patterson is known to regularly speak at events around Oakland County and around the state. He uses these engagements to forward his agenda, telling people it is time to bring capital punishment to Michigan. And in November of 1979, Patterson kicks off a statewide petition drive to reinstate the death penalty. Now, Michigan has an interesting relationship with the death penalty. The Michigan State Legislature voted to ban capital punishment on May 18, 1846. Michigan was the first English-speaking government in the world to do this, to ban capital punishment. Patterson's petition drive gets many signatures and plenty of press, but the trial of Johnson and Coyle is approaching quickly. If the death penalty is coming back, it won't be back in time to influence the outcome of their trial. In February of 1980, The People versus Kyle Johnson and Jeffrey Coyle is weeks away. Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Farrell Roberts orders Patterson and his team to stop referring to the murder of Monica Hockey as a, quote, thrill kill, and to stop discussing the case publicly. Judge Roberts does not want the jury pool tainted by Patterson's words in the press. The trial begins in March of 1980, and just before the trial starts, Coyle and Johnson attack another prisoner, attempting to gouge out his eyes the man was being held on a misdemeanor charge. Guards quickly intervene, and the prisoner avoids serious injury. When Coyle appears for trial, his hand is bandaged from an injury sustained during the fight, and his hair is cut into a mohawk. Johnson has shaved his head, and their appearance is at best disturbing. Guards from the jail caution the bailiffs that the two men have threatened to disrupt proceedings, and both are hoping for an insanity defense so they can avoid serving a long sentence in Hockey's death. Because the defendants are unpredictable, violent, and threatening to act out, extra security is brought in for the duration of the one-week trial. Johnson and Coyle are tried together. 
but each defendant has their own jury deciding the case. Numerous witnesses are called to testify, for the defense is one of Johnson's friends. He testified that on Saturday, the day before Monica's body was found, he went to Johnson's home and discovered her tied to a bed. All right, listeners, can you imagine? You find a young woman tied up in someone's bedroom, so you leave her there, and then you find out that she was violently, brutally murdered the next day, that her body was beaten, tortured, and broken. How do you live with yourself after something like that? How do you come to terms with it? Johnson's sister, Diane, will take the stand, but she's not there in defense of her brother. Quite the opposite. She testifies that her brother, Kyle Johnson, visited the family home and handed her the long-handled meat fork he'd used to stab Monica Hockey. Diane Johnson is with her mother when the exchange occurred, and the two women recoil from the casualness their brother and son display while talking about the murder of an innocent woman. They immediately turn the weapon over to law enforcement. The utensil is entered into evidence. The trial is held at the Oakland County Circuit Court in Pontiac, Michigan, and it lasts only a week. 19-year-old Kyle Glenn Johnson is found guilty first, and the mandatory sentence for the crime is life without parole. Days later, on Monday, March 24th, Jeffrey Allen Coyle is also found guilty and receives the same mandatory life sentence for murder. I'd like to tell you that this is the end of the story, that the Hockey family healed from their physical and emotional wounds, and that Johnson and Coyle served long and miserable sentences inside a Michigan prison. But this isn't the end of the story. Despite months of lobbying and a signature drive, Oakland County Prosecutor L. Brooks Patterson never does get the death penalty reestablished. There won't be another death penalty case in Michigan until Marvin Gabrion goes on trial in 2002 for the murder of Rachel Timmerman on federal land in the Manistee National Forest. This case was discussed back in episode 84, Rachel Timmerman, if you want to learn more about it. In October of 1982, Kyle Johnson is being transported from the Huron Valley Men's Prison in Pittsfield Township to the Washtenaw County Courthouse in Ann Arbor. Johnson has a court appearance for an incident in April of 1982, where he attacked a guard during an uprising in the prison. When they arrive at the courthouse and the doors of the van open, Johnson makes a break for it, sprinting away from his guards and disappearing into the city. Somehow, Kyle Johnson managed to free his legs from the leg irons he'd been attached to at the start of the ride, and he had released one wrist from the cuffs that bound him. What happens next is the largest manhunt in Washtenaw County history. Police descend on the college town, home of the University of Michigan, to search for a criminal with a proven history of violent, unpredictable behavior. Because Johnson slipped away from the guards in a heavily populated area, they are hesitant to draw their weapons and fire upon him for fear of striking a bystander. This allows Johnson to slip away into the crowds. He's known to be violent, aggressive, and dangerous, and law enforcement scrambles to find him. Within an hour, more than 80 officers are on the streets and in the air looking for Kyle Johnson. Johnson hides beneath the porch of a home for almost 15 hours, avoiding detection. He waits until long after midnight before slipping out. 
Then he steals a city-owned vehicle and heads north on U.S. 23. He's on his way out of town, perhaps toward his family in North Oakland County. A citizen who'd heard news reports of the daring escape by a violent criminal found the site of the city-owned and badged vehicle being driven at 2.20 a.m. outside of Ann Arbor unusual. The citizen pulls off the road to call police. Remember, it's 1982 and cell phones aren't a thing yet. The caller had to make an extra effort to report what he'd seen, and fortunately, police took his report seriously. Law enforcement soon locates the stolen city-owned car and gives chase. Johnson drives the car off the road and abandons the vehicle, running away on foot. He runs through the woods, concealing himself until he feels the police have moved on and are searching another area. Johnson walks out to the road and finds a house. He enters a home where 50-year-old Carl Schopp lives with his wife, Mary, near Eight Mile Road and Pontiac Trail. Once inside, Johnson helps himself to a banana from the kitchen and lifts the wallet out of a purse on the counter. As he fishes a set of car keys out of a jacket pocket, the shops wake up and confront him. Carl and Mary Shop grapple with the escaped prisoner, and Johnson flees the house, grabbing a knife from the kitchen on his way out. But Carl Shop is not backing down. He gives chase, brandishing his hunting rifle. Johnson calls to the homeowner, Go ahead, shoot me. But Shop doesn't shoot. He didn't want to kill someone over a break-in, and he wasn't aware that a dangerous criminal was loose in the area. Johnson disappears into the woods as the shops phone police to report a break-in. Johnson is again on the run, heading through the woods and across fields, looking for another house to take shelter in or to steal a car from. It's just after 4 a.m. when he uses a brick to smash a window at the home of Maris Marley. Isn't that a great name? Maris Marley. 43-year-old Maris Marley lives in a farmhouse on Six Mile Road in Salem Township. Awakened by the sound of breaking glass, Marley comes face to face with an intruder in her home, and she goes after him with a chair. But Johnson overpowers her, punching her in the face, causing her to fall and split the back of her head open. Marley also receives a black eye from the blow. Oddly enough, once she was down, Johnson offered her his hand and helped her up. He also allows her to get a rag from the kitchen and hold it against the wound on the back of her head. Despite a bloody gash that's bleeding heavily, Marley thinks quickly and offers to make Johnson a hot breakfast, which he agrees to. Hiding under a porch for almost a full day, he's very hungry. Marley talks calmly and nicely to him, trying to befriend the escaped convict, offering him a change of clothes and encouraging him to take a hot shower. Johnson agrees to the shower and disappears into the bathroom. Once he's safely under the spray... Marley flees the house, grabbing her keys and getting behind the wheel of her van and speeding down the road to the local gas station seeking help. When she arrives at the station, Marley sees a bizarre sight. There is a helicopter parked at the pumps, and it's being filled with fuel. Washtenaw County Sheriff Tom Minnick had spent the last two hours flying overhead hoping to spot the escaped prisoner. When the chopper was low on fuel... He landed at the fueling station to fill up again before continuing his search for Johnson. The gas station was located about a quarter mile from Marley's farm. Sheriff Minnick watched wide-eyed as the van raced up to the fueling station, and he placed a hand on his service revolver as the vehicle screeched to a halt. 
He relaxed his stance as a bruised woman in a bloody nightgown leapt from the vehicle, announcing, He's in my house. Marley had come across the sheriff by pure luck. Minnick rallies his men who descend on the Marley farm. Officers surround the house and call to Johnson that he should come out, that he should surrender. Johnson refuses, peppering his speech with expletives and suggesting that they come and get him. When deputies burst into the room where Johnson is holed up, they find him sitting on the bed with a Coca-Cola in one hand and a knife in the other. Drop it, the deputies bark at him, and Johnson complies, sending the knife and half a bottle of soda to the floor. With Johnson back in custody, law enforcement and the press label Maris Marley a hero for her brave actions which led to the recovery of the fugitive. While she's happy to have helped, she's also injured. Her face is bruised and swollen, and the gash on the back of her head requires medical attention. Marley will spend a week or so recovering at her parents' home in South Lyon. When Sheriff Minnick met up with Johnson at the county jail, looking on as Johnson is booked in on a slew of new charges, Johnson sees the sheriff. He looks Minnick in the eye and says, quote, I should have killed that woman. And he's referring, of course, to Maris Marley. Perry Hockey, Monica's older brother and the only son of Edward and Shirley Hockey, will live another 20 years with his injuries, passing away in 1999 at age 46. He is survived by his parents, his sister, and his daughter, Carrie, who was a toddler when her father was injured. As of this writing, Shirley Hockey, a woman who did her best to raise a loving, happy family, is in her 80s and continues to call Clarkston home. She made it through the summer of 1979 with her spirit and her faith intact. Maris Marley, the hero of Johnson's 1982 escape, is still around. She no longer lives at her farm on Six Mile Road, and she's closing in on 80 years of age. Kyle Johnson and Jeffrey Coyle, both in their late 50s, remain incarcerated and will live out their days as guests of Michigan Correctional Facilities. Already Gone is a bi-weekly true crime podcast focused on Michigan and the Great Lakes region. For more information on this case, including photos and some of our research, visit our website at www.alreadygonepodcast.com. You can find the show on Facebook or on Twitter at AlreadyGonePod. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. Thank you for listening, and please be safe.